You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Rock and roll suicide. All right. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I am your host, Don DiMuccio, and I just got back from my annual physical where I was informed that my body fat percentage is now officially in triple digits. So if any of the Guinness World Records people are listening, let's talk. Now, today's guest is somebody who I've heard about from the first time I started really delving into the rock era. His name would pop up in every decade and in reference to all styles along the rock spectrum. From playing the Hammond on Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone and seeing his name in the liner notes of albums like the Stones' Let It Bleed or Leonard Skinner's first few records. But the one memory that sticks in my head was as a kid listening to the radio and hearing that song, I Can't Quit Her. I was shocked when the DJ said it was blood, sweat, and tears from their iconic debut album, Father's Child to the Man. That didn't sound anything like the pop horn band I heard growing up. But before long, I learned, like with so many other projects, it was the brainchild of today's guest, the legendary Al Cooper. See your face everywhere I go. 
Our guest today has had the career of 10 men, maybe 11. Whereas most 14-year-olds' first job is a paperboy, at that age he was guitarist for the Royal Teens who had the top five hit Short Shorts. As a budding professional songwriter, he wrote the classic This Diamond Ring for Gary Lewis and the Playboys. He plays that iconic-sounding Hammond on Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone and worked with him throughout the years, including at the infamous Dylan Goes Electric appearance at 1965's Newport Folk Fest. He founded Blood, Sweat & Tears, had a prolific solo career, played on sessions for three of the Beatles, The Who, The Rolling Stones, and literally discovered Leonard Skinned, whose first three albums he produced, and Norman Rockwell once painted his portrait. True story. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, musician, producer, arranger, and our man, and author of Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards. I love that title. The legendary Al Cooper. Good morning, Al. Good morning. How are you on this gloomy Monday morning? Same as it ever was. Yes, sir. You know, I didn't realize when we were corresponding last week, we're practically neighbors. You're a fellow New Englander. Okay. What made you want to settle down in Massachusetts? Well, I didn't know I was going to be there forever, but I got a job teaching at the Berkeley School of Music. And I did that for a few years, and then I just stayed here. Was that in the late 80s? I can't remember. <laughs> 94. That's great. You know, I mentioned the book. The first version of Backstage Passes came out in 77. You were way ahead of the curve with writing your story. That wasn't really done back then, you know, as far as rock and roll was concerned. What made you decide to write your story at a relatively young age in an early part of your career? Well, I mean, there were so many bizarre things that happened to me that I thought it would be interesting. And it was. And now it's been reissued a couple of times? Yeah, which is good because, uh, you know, the, the, most of the interesting things are in there. I didn't have to update it. It's still in print, available on Amazon. Oh, yeah. As a kid growing up in Queens, did your parents encourage the whole music thing? Or? No, not necessarily. I mean, they didn't discourage it. But um, I, I started, they bought me a guitar, which was, uh, well, actually started before then. I went with them when they visited at their friend's house, and uh, their friends had a piano, and I had never had any time with a piano. So I, uh, they went in the room and did parent stuff, and I sat at the piano, and by the time they were done visiting, I had figured out how to play the number one song at the time, which was the Tennessee Waltz, all on the black keys, mind you. And then I was hooked, and I kept bugging them till they bought me a piano. So the piano did come first, before guitar? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Do you have a clear memory of the first time you heard rock and roll? First time I heard rock and roll? Mm -hmm. Well, um, do we count soul music? Sure. R&B? Yeah. When I was young, I used to, uh, I always had insomnia. So my, my father having nothing to do with that, bought himself a portable radio. It was battery operated. And so when my parents would go to sleep, I would take the battery operated radio and it had a headset, which was just one ear. Yeah. And, uh, and I started listening to that all night because I couldn't sleep and I would usually read. But the radio was much more interesting. And that's how I, I heard all this great music. I know a lot of people say that like late at night, You'd get stations far beyond where you were in New York. Yes, that's true. What's the time frame we're talking? Mid-50s? Uh, let me think about this. Yes, probably. A lot of artists I talked to, they start young in small high school bands, and then they work their way up to the club scene. 
But you got started very, very young. You were what, professional at 14 years old? Probably 15. 15? But I, I started playing gigs when I was 14. You know, just uh, churches and temples and stuff like that. And that would have been on guitar, right? Yeah. What was your first guitar? Uh, a Sears Roebuck $45 guitar. Exactly. Solid body. You remember your first amp? Uh, Ampeg Rocket. Yeah, and I mean, not long after that, I started playing professionally, which was uh, very tough on my parents. Were you going to school too? Yeah, although <laughs> not as much as I should have. <laughs> I was going to say, did your academic career hurt by playing late night gigs and things like that? Well, I just wasn't interested in school. You said it was hot on your parents. Can you elaborate a little bit? Well, I mean, like I say, it was tough. Because uh, I think when I, when I went to high school, I went to a, a different school every year. They started putting me into private school, mm -hmm. but nothing seemed to work. Then I went to college for one year, and I said, I just can't do this anymore. And uh, that was the end of that. So in 58, you joined a group, the Royal Teens, who had a big hit. Yeah, and it was it was very tough because I, I had to do this under the jurisdiction of my parents. So, you know, there were there were things they would let me do and then they would instantly regret it. <laughs> but I, I kept prevailing. I mean, I, I lost work because of it. Then I, I formed a local band and uh, that was easier for them to take. So that came after the Royal Teens? Yeah. Well, to stay with that for a minute, obviously the song was Who Wears Short Shorts, which has kind of had a resurgence over the years in commercials and everything else. Now, unless I'm wrong, you didn't play on the recording. You joined no, after. I wasn't in the band then. I didn't join until uh, they had the song called Believe Me. Did you do a national touring with them? Uh, as much as I could, considering my parents. What was life on the road like from the eyes of a 15-year-old? Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was fantastic. You have any specific incidents? Oh, millions of them. I liked when we played shows, you know, where there were 14 acts on the bill. Because then I could see all these acts that I really liked, like face to face. Who were some of the ones you got to work with? Oh, God. We would play uh, Alan Freed shows and New York State shows and uh, stuff like that. You know, there were 15 acts on the bill. And the workload wasn't difficult. I mean, we played five shows a day, but we only played two or three songs a show. Did you all share the same back line? Uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they had an orchestra, and we'd set up in front of the orchestra. Wasn't Bob Gordio in the band? Yeah, it was his band. Wow. Future Four Seasons legend. Yeah. And I think, I think he co-wrote Short Shorts. Yeah, he was, you know, he was the guy. Also, uh, I'm trying to think of the band after that. Oh, yeah, Four Seasons. The uh, Four Seasons bass player was uh, Charlie Colello, who became uh, a major collaborator with me later in life. So what made you actually leave the Royal Teens? My parents. It was very hard for me to tour nationally. I was 15 years old. Did you ever get any hassle from promoters no. being underaged? No, they had tons of young, you know, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of young bands. At what point do you transition into being a professional songwriter? I'm picturing like the Brill Building kind of thing. You set up in an office. Yeah, I, I think I started doing that when I was about 16. And I wrote with two other guys. 
So we were like a trio. And uh, I'd go to work every day and we'd go in some room that had a fake white cork bricks on the wall and a piano, a bench and two chairs. And we'd sit in there all day and write songs. That was what I did for a living. One of the most famous ones being This Diamond Ring. Yeah. Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Yeah. There was more. But it, it was hard work, but it was a lot of fun. And the three of us got along quite well. And we had hits. So it was uh, rewarding. What were some of the other ones you did? Oh, no, I have to think. Well, uh, another person who worked at the same company was Gene Pitney. Although he wrote songs, uh, he would do some of our songs. And uh, the biggest one was uh, I Must Be Seeing Things, which was a top 10 record. Yeah, he was a hell of a songwriter, too. He wrote He's a Rebel. Oh, he wrote much more. I knew him very well because, you know, we, we were at work together every day. And he was a very nice guy, and I, I stayed in touch with him throughout his, his entire life. It seems tough to be a professional songwriter in that when you're writing the song, you kind of have something in your head of what you think it's going to sound like. How do you feel when you hear an interpretation of how Gary Lewis did the song or how Gene did? Was there oh, ever I, hated, I hated the Gary Lewis record until it was number one. <laughs> and the royalties came rolling in? Well, that takes a year. How does that work? Well, the they, they, you know, they keep records of how often it's played because you get paid for that and then how often it's sold. And uh, it's usually a year behind. Obviously still getting residuals. Yeah. I mean, I, I get a check, I think, twice a year. How uh, did you interpret the song in your head like when you wrote it? When we wrote it, we wrote it as a, a black song. So uh, we hated the Gary Lewis record till it was number one. So almost like, a, like an Impressions or Drifters, that kind of thing? Uh, I'm trying to think. I know you cut it on one of your early solo albums in the 70s. Is that pretty much what you were thinking? Well, no, it's more primitive than that. Uh, it's, uh, I have a, a four-CD box set, and it starts off with three versions of This Diamond Ring. And the first one is the demo, which I loved. It was really good. And uh, then there's the Gary Lewis record, and then there's a version that I did later on in life. I mean, I, I know you've told this, like a Rolling Stones session story a million times, but I want to yes, kind of look and, back and up. I, and I don't want it to be a million in one. Yeah, but you know, there's eight people in Butte City, Idaho, never heard it. Well, they're not going to die because of it. <laughs> you never know. And you don't want that in your head. I'm not worried. But I, I kind of want to back up a little bit because obviously it started with a friendship with Tom Wilson, the producer. So how did you become acquainted with him? Well, I knew a lot of producers because I was a songwriter. And that was how you got your songs cut. You played them for producers. And uh, sometimes the producers would bring the artist with them to listen. I remember once uh, when I wrote with Bob Brass and Erwin Levine that they brought, uh, the producer brought the artist in and I was floored because, you know, I loved this artist. And there she was in the room with us, and we were playing songs for her. It was uh, Timmy Euro. It was so long ago, people might not remember her, but she was a, a great singer. Her biggest hit was called Hurt. I'm so hurt that you would lie to me. And also, What's the Matter, Baby? And so she came to where we worked, and we played songs for her, and that, and that blew my mind. How'd you feel meeting Dylan? Were you a fan at the time? 
Well, I was friends with um, uh, his producer, Tom Wilson. And so he invited me to a session to watch, and I did a play. So you weren't slated to work on the record? No. I went because I was the producer's friend. So I sat in the control room. Then you make your way down to the Hammond. Yes, I did do that because I was very ambitious. What's your quote? 90% ambition, 10% talent? Yes. <laughs> was the Hammond sound set or did you make any changes? I didn't really know how to make changes. Okay. The bootleg series, I think it's like, you know, 600 CDs. It's everything that was recorded at those sessions for Highway 61. And there was one with just the Hammond drums, I think. And yeah, you can actually hear how primitive, in a good way, your playing was. It just somehow. Well, I, I think that what saved me in that case was I always had a good sense of arrangement. And so I played what was appropriate instead of playing anything else. And that's why it worked for me. And it works for the track. Well, that, well that's what I'm saying, because yeah. I played something appropriate. If somebody had overplayed on that, would have ruined it. Well, yeah. Also, you know, I didn't know that much about the organ. Yeah, to my ears, it sounds like you're playing the triad C, E. No, well, I mean, that's the chords to the song. But the, and, the positioning. I, I didn't have any music, so I had to do it by ear. And if you listen carefully in the beginning... You know, like the first verse, uh, I don't hit the chord until the second beat. Right. So, I mean, I had very good ears. So if, if they played a C chord, I would go, okay, that's a C chord. But I would be a beat late for the first verse and chorus mm -hmm. while I learned it. And then once the second verse started, I knew it. And then I was just improvising. So obviously Dylan loved it. And then from there, you were on other tracks on the album. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And when they kept me the next day, uh, well, I mean, after that session, the like Rolling Stone session, Dylan and Mike Bloomfield and myself stayed after everybody left. And they asked me if I would come back the next day. And I, I asked him if I could bring a bass player that I thought would be good. And I brought a guy who lived down the street from me, uh, Harvey Goldstein, sure. who became Harvey Brooks. Yep. And uh, he and I always played together in Queens where we lived. So I got him on the date. Who's drumming on those sessions? I don't remember. So the infamous Newport Folk Festival, Dylan Goes Electric, it's almost folklore now. Was that you and Bloomfield and Harvey? Uh, yes. But at that time, uh, I think I'd already played on like a Rolling Stone. Was the single out at that point? I don't think so. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody booed when we played Electric. Well, yeah. And through the miracle of film, we now know it wasn't that he got booed off the stage. It's a lot more nuanced than that. No, no. <laughs> it, it, the audience wasn't recorded as well as it should have been. But there, there was a vibe, like so many things that happen in life. It's not just one moment. There was a vibe people, going on. The people, did, the people did not want Bob Dylan to play Electric. It was a Newport folk festival but there were electric bands there that's what i never understood chuck berry did it in 58 uh, Chuck Berry always played electric yeah muddy waters had an electric band there What's that's the not yeah but dylan was not known for playing with an electric band right chuck berry always played with an electric band but it was still the folk festival <laughs>
Well, they booked him there. It wasn't yeah. his fault. I know. Well, that's what I'm saying. And nobody gave him shit about it because he was Chuck Berry, and that's what he always did. But it's not what Bob Dylan always did up to that point. Why was Peter Yarrow so stressed out? Because uh, he was managed by the same person as Bob Dylan. He was one of the directors of the folk festival, and he was uh, good friends with Dylan. But he was just like barking at you guys on stage. It seems very odd. The whole atmosphere seemed odd. Well, he was one of the coordinators of the festival. Yeah. And the PA wasn't what we would come close to thinking about today in terms of what the audience was hearing. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. It's just that, um, that they weren't ready for that. Was Forest Hills the next gig? Yes. How was the audience on that one? Terrible. Yeah. The whole first tour was like that because they thought they were supposed to boo. We got used to it immediately. We played the Hollywood Bowl. You know, we toured. We were doing a tour, and we get we got booed every night. Did that stress you out? No, it became humorous. Now you've always been closely associated with Mike Bloomfield. Obviously, you played the Dylan's band. Can you describe your relationship with him? How did you guys meet? We met at the Dylan session. So you had never worked with him before that. I never heard of him before that. Really? You guys just headed off? Yeah. Two Jewish kids who loved music. He was so influential and in playing on a level that's much more authentic than a lot of his peers. Well, I don't know how Bob found him, but he did. I, I suspect it was through Albert Grossman, who was Bob's manager at the time. You may disagree with me, but why isn't he remembered or recognized by the general public the same way Clapton, Beck, Page... Pound for pound, he's in a lot of ways a better guitar player than all of them. Well, I don't think like that. I just think, you know, somebody's a good guitar player or they're not. Fair enough. Blues Project, you kind of discovered and joined them. Uh, they called me because uh, they heard the, the Dylan record and asked me if I would come to a rehearsal. So I did, and then they asked me to join the band. And having nothing much else going for me, I thought it would be a good thing to do, so I did it. You wrote the flute thing for them, and I love the songs, too. Yeah. For those days, that seemed like a very progressive kind of group. Well, I don't think that they were interested in following any trends. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do. And it was very tough in the beginning because there, there wasn't anybody else doing what we were doing, pretty much, in the beginning. Because by the time Monterey came... You were already out of the group. Yes. I was the assistant stage manager. Yeah. How'd you get hooked up with them? Uh, I just knew people that were in the planning stages of it. So uh, a guy named Chip Monk, who was the stage manager, asked me if I wanted to uh, help him. And I said, sure. What are some of your memories from the Monterey Pop Festival that general public might not have caught from the film? Well, at this age, not many. <laughs> I, I think about that and I go, you know, I can't remember much about it anymore. You obviously played. Yes, but I mean, but I was a, a also assistant stage manager. So I was, I was working. We went up there a week before to set up the stage and, you know, it was a very complicated job. Nothing like that had ever been done up to that point. That's correct. Was there any trepidation about, is this going to go off? Everybody was very positive. Is that where you met Jimi Hendrix? Yes. That's where everybody met Jimi Hendrix mm -hmm. in America. Tell me about your relationship with him. Great. And um, 
very soon after that, he moved a half a block from me in New York. And so we saw each other all the time. And we became very good friends, which is how I ended up playing on his album. Electric Lady Land. Yeah. What are your memories of those sessions? What tracks are you on? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, to us mere mortals, it's like if we played on a Hendrix record, oh, my God, I would tattoo everything I did on my body, you know? Well, I, you know, I don't have enough room on my body. True. No, but I mean, I'd, I, that's all I did was play on sessions for a very long time. Right. So, you know, there's stuff I don't even remember I played on. You know, the highest honor is when a guitar player gives you one of his guitars. Famously, Johnny Cash gave Dylan his guitar. I didn't know it was a tradition. Oh, yeah. It's an old tradition. Hendrix gave you, what was it, a PCBS Strat? Well, you know, I didn't think of it like that. A, 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 a pre-CBS oh. Strat. Yeah. I went to the session, and he had about six Stratocasters on stands there. And I was a Stratocaster player. So I, I picked one up, but I couldn't play it because it's strung backwards because he's left-handed. Right. So he said, you like that guitar? And I said, I don't know. Somebody's got it strung all fucked up. <laughs> and I can't play it. He said, why don't you take it? I said, because it's yours. And I put it back on the stand. And the next day he had it delivered to my house. That's awesome. Did you still have it? No, I had to sell it. Because people kept breaking into my house. That's a drag. Well, yeah. yeah. I did get $100,000 for it, though. Wow, they got it cheap. Well, at the time. Now it would be priceless. The old guitar would be priceless, too, now I think of it. So if you want to send me a guitar, I'll give you my address at the end of the show. Well, send me a check first. Oh, boy, wow. Tell me about working with The Who on The Who sellout. That was fun. Um, trying to think what my connection was to Townsend. Probably met them for the first time at Monterey. Yeah, maybe that was it. So he called me and uh, invited me to play on the session. And so I went down there and um, she seemed to be the only person that was interested in me doing that. I mean, in the band. Mm -hmm. So no nobody else really talked to me. And so I got my instructions from him, and I played, and it was very simple. I think um, it only took about six takes. I dread to ask the question, but do you remember what track it was? <laughs> Not off the top of my head. If okay. I heard it, I'd know it. Oh, I played on a track called Mary Ann with the Shaking Hands. Oh, that's right. There were a couple of versions of that. It was the album version, the single version. Yeah, but I played on all of them. And the Rolling Stones, French horn, yeah. and you can't always get what you want. Well, I played the piano and the organ. You didn't play the French horn? Yes, but it was an afterthought. I didn't play it on the session. Yeah, how would you get hooked up with them? They called me. So you were just in demand? I, well, I mean, I guess so, because I didn't know them. Well, that was a very precarious time for them. I mean, Brian Jones was kind of at his all-time roughest point. Yeah, he didn't, do, he didn't do anything. He was just there. Who was kind of leading the session? Mick and Keith? Yeah. I think I played piano on the keeper take, and then they, I overdubbed the organ. And then about three months later, they sent me the master tape and asked me to put French horn on it, on the intro. Yeah. So they weren't there when I did it. That's and a I tough instrument. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't a very good player. It took me hours to do that. 
And thank God for punching in. But I did it. And it was just me and an engineer, so it wasn't as embarrassing as it would have been if I had to do it live in front of them. I've actually seen them in concert many times, and I've heard a couple guys flub that line. They had a French horn player? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, it's not that hard to play. Otherwise, I couldn't have played it. One I've heard it's a tough instrument to master. Well, it took me three hours to get it, you know, perfect. Speaking of horns, I want to get into Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Childish Father to the Man is one of the best debut albums, I think, of any band, arguably. An absolute classic. What was the thought process putting that band together? Like, what was the sound in your head that you were going for? What I got on the first album. It was more than just horns. Is there a lot of critics who compared them to Chicago? And then the two bands are nothing alike. That's like a lazy comparison. Well, I mean, there are two horn bands at a time where there weren't a lot of horn bands. Chicago was much better. Uh, different. Well, more original. You guys did a nice mix of original songs, like your tracks, My Days Are Numbered, obviously the, the single, Can't Quit Her. How'd you feel later hearing David Clayton Thomas or Jerry Fisher singing your songs live? Uh, so long as I got a check, I was happy. Okay. Frankly, I was glad because I didn't have to go out on the road and do all that stuff. Because that was the end of that for me for quite a while. I think I took a job as a producer after that. So you were done with the band life, the touring, recording? Yeah, it's tough. So speaking of which, the single, because I heard you say once in an interview that Columbia kind of dropped the ball with that release. I don't know what you're talking about. What single? I Can't Quit Her. Oh, well, they, you know, we didn't have any hit singles. There's no hit singles from that album as far as I recall. Because that song got a lot of airplay. Yeah, well, it didn't sell a lot of singles. Did you do any promotion for it on TV? We did the TV shows and we toured. I did one tour with them. Did you do any promo films? Not that I recall. I don't think there were such things then. Now, obviously you left the band. I was thrown out of the band. Uh, well, they just said they didn't want to work with me anymore. Why? They didn't get into it. So I said, fine. Jeez, I don't understand. Well, I think it's a very easy understanding. Why? How? I think they wanted a more professional singer, which they got. Ergo, they had much more success than when I was singing. Commercial success? Yes. Better records? That well, arguably, that, no. That, that wasn't the point. I didn't have that much to do with that because John Simon produced that. Were you with him through any of the, the second album? Was the reason no. I ask is because there's a cool version of a live version of you singing uh, You Made Me So Very Happy. Well, I mean, I, I, we were doing that on the tour. Right. But were you out before the recording started? On the second album? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got thrown out pretty fast by the band that I started. That sucks. Well, it worked out, it worked out very well for everybody. That's true. How the hell did you get Norman Rockwell to paint you and Mike Bloomfield? I got his phone number and asked him. Just like that? Yeah. I think the, the idea of doing it, you know, that I thought of that was the important part. I was a big fan. Oh, yeah? That's why I thought of it. I got to spend the time with him after that. And I w was hoping that he would accept it because I had never seen him do anything like it, which is why I wanted him to do it. Any memories from the actual session? 
Well, he just came and took pictures of us. And he worked in the pictures, but uh, he had an opening in New York, and I went to the opening and, and spent time with him. And I talked to him on the phone in the period where he was painting. And uh, we became pretty good friends. It's unusual. Yeah, it's true. You have the only rock and roll, you know, anything well, close well, to that. that. Well, that was the whole point. Yeah. That's why I thought of it. How did you come to meet and discover and sign and work with Leonard Skinner? I heard him in a bar. Atlanta. Atlanta. I was I was uh, producing a record there, and I worked during the day. So every night I would go to the same club, and they played there for a week. Every band would play there for a week. And so I heard them like six nights in a row, and I thought they were great. And uh, by the fourth night, I talked to their manager and told them I wanted to sign them. Now, did you know right away you wanted to produce them as well? Yes, that was what I meant. Also, I had my own label. That's what I wanted to sign them to. Were they hard to work with? Yep. Can you give me some examples? I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That bad. It got harder and harder. And so, uh, otherwise, you know, I would have stayed with them. Well, you did three albums. Yes. But each one got harder. What would the arguments be over it? Were you suggesting songs or arrangements or what was the well, they were very they're very good arrangers, so I tried to stay away from that. I respected their arrangements and their songs. So I would just suggest things. And until they got a keyboard player, I would play keyboards. It was an incident, I guess you were having a, a debate with somebody in the band and they were kind of giving you some trouble. Don't give us any more suggestions, and I said, No, no, no. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, he just berated the guy and said, listen, I, I will listen to any suggestion he says. I don't remember his exact words, but mm. that's what he meant. Right. He said if we use one of them, it was worth it. Yes. Yep. And they used more than one. <laughs> I'm sure. What was the last straw? Did you decide you're just not doing this anymore? Yeah. It got harder and harder. It got more and more difficult. And I said, well, to myself, I said, if, if they don't want me, I don't want to be there. And so I left. You did some really interesting solo projects over the years that sometimes didn't bear your name as the main artist. And the one that I'm thinking of was 1979's Four on the Floor. Well, was that, was, that was a bomb. You and Jeff Skunk Baxter, right? Yeah, we were, we were very good friends. I think we were just making like a disco record. That's why it was called Four on the Floor. Rock tunes with disco arrangements. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I think it's terrible. But it was fun. Yeah. Well, the liner note says on the back to all the people who probably misunderstand this. I think it's meant tongue in cheek. It was, but it was, you know, but um, it wasn't meant to be entirely funny. There's a lot of people online, especially, have been saying, induct Al Cooper into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, I don't care. I see. I knew that. Do you even care about stuff like that? No. What are your thoughts about the Hall of Fame and all the politics involved with it? I don't, I don't know because I'm not involved, and, and and I don't think I care to be. What about politics in general? Are you a political guy? No, I've never voted. Oh, I heard you left the country when Reagan got elected. Who wouldn't? <laughs> I, I I don't even know anymore. How do you see yourself? How do you want to be remembered? Well, that's why I, that's why I wrote a book. I mean, and it's very very candid. It's not, I'm so great, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. There's a lot of bad stuff in it. Anything you regret? No, that, that was the whole point. 
it, it was, uh, I, I wanted to point out the bad people. I wanted to talk about the mistakes I made and stuff like that. It's a, it's a very candid book. That, that's why I wrote it is because <laughs> there's a lot of bad stuff going on that people don't know about. Do you think the music business will ever recover? From what? From the state it's in today. Oh, I don't even know the state it's in today. Do you feel disconnected from the whole thing now? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't listen to the radio. I don't buy records. So you tell me. If you wanted to pick up the phone right now and say, yeah, I'm going to start a band and I'm going to get, get a deal. Do you think you could do it in this environment? Or would you even want to? I couldn't do it at this age. I'm 78. Mm, still young. Not in my eyes. I'm at the end of my life. Maybe the last chapter, but not the end. No, I'm at the end of my life. I don't leave the house, except for doctor's appointments. I mean, it took a lot out of me in my life. So, you know, there's not much I can do anymore. But you don't regret it? Not at all.
album Super Session featuring Mike Bloomfield, Stephen Stills, and Al Cooper. That's their take on Dylan's It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. And I do want to thank Al Cooper for being on the show. It's a real honor having him on, and I encourage everyone to grab a copy of his autobiography, Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards. The link is in the show notes, where you'll also find links to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, including our website, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube page at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Hey, Google. What is it that I always tell these losers about syntax? It's all spelled out as one word. No spaces or commas, please. You morons. That's my girl. And I'm going to leave you with another track that Al Cooper played on. This time it was with the three surviving Beatles on George Harrison's 1981 single, All Those Years Ago. As always, thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm shouting all about love. Well, they cheated you like a dog. Go.